This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On today's No Restraint podcast, I've really been thinking about Israel a lot. And part of the reason I'm thinking about Israel a lot is because what's happening there is very similar to what's happening here. And actually, it's very similar to what's happening all over the world. The world is in flames, in case you haven't noticed, from Cuba to China, from the Ukraine to, well, pick a South African uh, nation, not South Africa just, but any nation in Southern Africa, and you'll see there are plenty of threats towards plenty of governments. A lot of people seem to think that the Israelis that are demonstrating against the government of Bibi Netanyahu, that they're trying to save Israel's democracy from some sort of destruction. And nothing could be further from the truth because you could have a legitimate concern about aspects of the government's program and you can also have some real legitimate concerns about certain members of the coalition. I do, but there's a dangerous and a sort of anti-democratic hysteria that has taken hold. And it's been incited by people like the opposition leader, Yair Lapid, with his battle cry of bring the government down, or the mayor of Tel Aviv, this Ron Hulday, who said, democracy leads to dictatorship, and countries don't become democratic again except through bloodshed. What really is happening is a perfect storm. And that's when crises really take place. There are a lot of people who hate Netanyahu. And no matter what he does, they think he's corrupt. They think he's a liar. They think he's self-serving. And then there's the fear of an extremist government. And that's fueled by anxiety about the nationalists. Well, there's three parties, the nationalists and the religious ultras in the coalition, along with the religious parties. And there's a whole bunch of anxiety on the left, whose political marginalization in the face of the Palestinian Arabs' murderous intransigence is being cemented by the increase in Orthodox and Mizrahi communities who have no patience for liberal pieties. Thanks to Melanie Griffith, who always writes the clearest and most easy-to-understand commentary when it comes to Israel. The left are now aghast that the judiciary, upon whom they rely to hold the progressive line against those they collectively demonize as the right, may lose their power as the left's political surrogates. Democracy involves the rule of law, anchored in the consent of the people, which is expressed through electing politicians who make those laws. And this is safeguarded by independent judges, by police and prosecutors, and, probably most importantly, by a free press. In Israel, however, since the 1990s, when Supreme Court President 
Eharon Barak began to blur the boundary between law and political activism, the court has increasingly undermined democracy through behavior that owes more to the judge's political and ideological views than to the law. It allows anyone to petition the court even if they have no legal standing. It justifies its rulings on a vague and subjective term of reasonableness, which has no basis in law. It controls legal advisors who instruct every minister on what to do, even if this runs contrary to government policy. The attorney general may argue against the government in court while banning it from seeking independent counsel to defend its policies. And the court routinely employs double standards by favoring the left wing over the right wing projects or the rights of Arabs over Israeli Jews. People say there's no longer any point in voting since the judges run the country. Under these reforms, the courts will still be able to hold ministers to account. They'll be able, what they won't be able to do, however, is to overturn laws that are passed by the Knesset unless they clearly violate an order that's entrenched in a basic law. And politicians, rather than judges, will dominate the committees appointing new justices. In the United States, judges are political appointments, and Great Britain prohibits its own courts from striking down laws that are passed by Parliament. Yet America and Britain are not fascist dictatorships. True, Israel lacks the checks and balances of the British and the American systems. This is because Israel's political structure is deeply dysfunctional and needs radical reform. But while politicians at least must be elected every four years, the judiciary has no checks at all. What makes the uproar, though, so absurd is that the reforms will broadly return Israel to the situation before Barack's judicial revolution. As law professor Avi Bell has written for decades after Israel's declaration of independence, only the Knesset could legislate, and no court could overturn legislation. The first Israeli government appointed its judges directly, subject to Knesset ratification, pretty similar to what we do here in the States, where the Senate has to confirm the appointees. Attorney General and all other legal advisors could be dismissed, and their legal opinions bound nobody. This was all similar to what the current reform package is asking. The objector's inescapable logic is that they'd rather have ruled by judges than by elected politicians. And this is all of a piece with the West post-democracy movement in which people prioritize universal laws over national ones, elevate the legitimacy of street protests, and regard political activist judges as the shock troops of the progressive assault on traditional values. This mindset now unites most of the progressive classes in Israel, in Great Britain, and here in America. For them, ordinary people who don't share their views are the deplorables. By contrast, the judges, educated, liberal, cosmopolitan, they're people like themselves. They justify their position by pointing in horror at the three ultra-ultras in Netanyahu's coalition. But such figures have only gained traction because mainstream politicians have failed to deal with public concern over the rising toll of terrorist violence and the failure 
to preserve the integrity of the nation by ignoring illegal Arab land grabs, and the court is viewed as having legitimized such lethal, lethal, really, when you think about it, neglect. And that's why I'm telling you, democracy in Israel is indeed in danger, but the peril isn't coming from the government. It isn't coming from these reforms. And when it comes to peril to Israel, let me tell you one thing I know for sure. Democrats in America, their attitudes towards Israel have reached a tipping point. The history of the pro-Israel movement in the United States was always predicated on one goal, creating a bipartisan consensus in favor of support for the Jewish state. And for many years, it succeeded in doing just that. There's a strong tradition of support for the ideas of a Jewish state, and it dates back to the earliest days of our republic. So Zionism is actually deeply baked into the DNA of America. APAC activists, therefore, had little trouble cultivating rising politicians from both major parties. The result was that in the last half century, the ranks of Congress were filled with politicians who could be counted on to support Israel, even if they had very few Jewish constituents. But it's time to acknowledge that the era of bipartisan support for Israel is over. As the latest Gallup tracking poll of attitudes towards Israel and the Middle East conflict indicate, when broken down by party affiliation, Democrats now sympathize more with Palestinians than with Israel. Currently, 49% of Democrats favor the Palestinians, with only 38% backing Israel. By contrast, Republicans now back the Jewish state by a staggering 78 to 11% margin. That's the culmination of a trend that's been decades in the making, as the two parties have largely swapped identities when it comes to Israel in the last 60 years. In the first years of the Jewish state, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, Democrats were overwhelmingly sympathetic to Israel and took pride in President Harry S. Truman's recognition of the fledgling nation on its very first day of existence. In that era, Republicans were largely split, with many either indifferent or openly hostile, something that was reflected in the policies of the administration of President Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s. And that began to change in the aftermath of the 67 Six-Day War and eventually led to Republicans electing an ardently pro-Israel president in Ronald Reagan in 1980 while winning a modern record 40% of the Jewish vote. Today, the Republicans are virtually a lockstep pro-Israel party with only few dissenters being libertarians who, while not opposing Israel, are against any aid to any foreign country. Meanwhile, at the same time that the GOP was embracing Israel, a shift began on the other side of the aisle. Part of that was due to political changes. Part of that was due to political changes in the Jewish state. The end of the domination of the Labor Party and the election of Menachem Begin as prime minister in 1977 made it a bit more difficult for American liberals to identify with Israel. The policies of labor-led government on security issues prior to the Oslo Accords in 93 were not that different from those of the right. But the rise of Begin's Likud party, coupled with the camp of nationalist and religious parties, 
was hard to fathom for Americans who had come to define their Jewish identity solely through the prism of their political liberalism and social justice issues. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. More than that, it was during this period that the far left of the Democratic Party began to regard the Jewish state through the prism of anti-Zionist propaganda, which falsely depicted it as an expression of colonialism. Still, the vast majority of Democrats rejected those ideas and the leadership of the party, which was reflected in the views of the geriatrics that have led its congressional caucuses up until this year, and many in the rank and file were still happy to identify as pro-Israel. In 2001, Gallup reported that Democrats still backed Israel by a 51 to 16 percent margin. While that's still true of some congressional Democrats, they are now out of touch with their party's left-wing base. It's not as if strong sympathy for Israel across the board is gone. When Gallup asked respondents how they feel about Israel without adding in the contrast with the Palestinians, the numbers were more encouraging. The survey says 56% of Democrats have a favorable view of Israel, a number that has shown little change since 2001 when it stood at 60%. But it's still much lower than independents, 67% of whom view Israel favorably, up from 59% in 2001, let alone Republicans, 82% of whom view it favorably, up from 75% in 2001. And only a minority of Americans think well of the Palestinian Authority, 36% of Democrats, 28% of independents, and only 9% of Republicans. But the problem is that when you ask people how they feel about Israel vis-a-vis the Palestinians, the intersectional mindset kicks in for those who are influenced by the left. That explains why, when given the choice, more Democrats now favor an entity that has repeatedly rejected peace than those who back Israel. So what explains this shift? Gallup claims it might be a reflection of the high number of Palestinians killed in the ongoing conflict though without mentioning that those figures are largely composed of slain terrorists. But they're not wrong to see it as connected to the waning religiosity of most Americans, since the remaining people of faith, who are more likely to be Republicans, are strong supporters of Zionism. They're missing the real answer, the rise of the intersectional left that falsely analogizes the Palestinian war on Israel to the struggle for civil rights in the United States, as well as falsely depicting the Jewish state as an expression of white privilege and an oppressor of Palestinian people of color. A generation of Americans has been soaking up toxic critical race theory myths in academia. These bad ideas are now parroted in much of the corporate and liberal media and pop culture entertainment outlets. They don't understand that the majority of Israeli Jews are themselves people of color and that Jews are the indigenous people of the country, not interlopers. They also don't understand 
that it is the Palestinians who have rejected compromised peace offers by different Israeli governments in the last 30 years. Yet even supposedly pro-Israel Democrats blame the impasse on current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Settlements in areas over the so-called Green Line and other Israeli policies, many of which are not explained or understood by American Jews. There are other factors play as well. The hostility of the Obama administration to Israel's positions on security and territory influenced a generation of Democrats who idolized the 44th president. His decision in 2015 to support a disastrous nuclear deal with Iran that endangered Israel's very existence and that served as a partisan litmus test led many in his party to be angry when Netanyahu went all out to persuade Congress to oppose it earlier that year. Obama's stand also essentially legitimized anti-Zionist sentiment on the left. The fact that his successor, former President Donald Trump, became the most pro-Israel U.S. president also caused many partisan Democrats who hated him to take an increasingly antagonistic stance towards the Jewish state. Since some think anything Trump did, including historic stances like moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in May of 2018, is inherently wrong, if not outright evil, that also allowed anti-Zionists to go mainstream. As a result of these factors, so-called progressives dominate congressional Democrats, with the Marxist squad leading the way and being fated as their party's current rock stars. That's also reflected in the liberal media, which also plays a role in shaping the opinions of Democrats. For example, the two editors who currently run the New York Times opinion section, Allison Benedict and Max Strasser, are openly anti-Zionist. And so the poll numbers come as no surprise. Contrary to anti-Semitic squad members, representatives Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, Support for Israel isn't all about the Benjamins. Jews have not bought Congress. Until the American educational system was hijacked by Marxist radicals, Israel was popular with Americans of all backgrounds, and it remains so among those, like many independents and most Republican voters, who don't buy into the left's lies about history and race. But as Gallup results demonstrate, from now on, it's not possible to pretend that both parties are equally committed to Israel's defense. Thanks to the influence of the ideology to which even President Joe Biden bends his knee, the Democrats have reached a tipping point on Israel, from which there may be no road back. Hat tip, Jonathan Tobin, the editor-in-chief of JNS.org. I also wanted to talk on today's No Restraint podcast about a cancellation that really upset me. It was done by the author of Primal Screams, Eberstadt, Mrs. Eberstadt. She scheduled to give a speech at Furman University about her book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, and she canceled it. Here's her reason. She said, in the spring of 2014, in retrospect, the dress rehearsal for cancel culture some commencement speakers around the country were disinvited or withdrew themselves from consideration owing to left-wing protests. I wasn't among them. A few faculty members at Seton Hall University 
tried to have my invitation rescinded on the grounds that I wasn't what they meant by Catholic progressive. They failed. I delivered my address as scheduled at New Jersey's Meadowlands Arena to some 6,000 graduates, families, and friends, and I was awarded an honorary doctorate in humane letters. These are the words of Miss Eberstedt. It was a thrilling event, she said. I enjoy talking to students. I teach graduate students and young professionals. And I founded an organization that helps mentor hundreds of women involved in journalism and media, many of them right out of college. Those experiences possibly explain why I had never been the object of protest by students. But 2023 is light years from 2014. Some months ago, the head of Furman's Tocqueville program invited me to give a public lecture about primal screams. Not knowing a soul there, I googled. Nestled in scenic Greenville, South Carolina, the university was founded in 1826 by the Southern Baptist Convention. Furman's website features young people and said it's to be innovative in their thinking and compassionate in their approach to career, community, and life. The Tocqueville program has hosted impressive speakers. This seemed a promising opportunity to visit an attractive campus, befriend some students and faculty, and talk over ideas. What could go wrong? Well, consider what happened to the speaker who preceded me last month in the same series, Scott Yunor, a professor of political science at Boise State University. Mr. Yunor had been invited to speak on Dostoevsky and Conscience. An inhospitality committee sprang into action, triggered not by his speech topic, but by opinions that he had expressed elsewhere, including his critique of feminism and support for sex role realism. Scores of faculty and student protesters silently objected inside and outside as he spoke. Three armed policemen were assigned to his protection. Within the auditorium, Protesters lined the walls that the professor had to pass, holding posters with ad hominem slogans and quotations of his taken out of context, staring balefully at him throughout. I called Mr. Yunor to ask for his take. Never in my life have I experienced a crowd so uninterested in learning and so unwilling to hear, he said. They were simply filled with malice. No one in the administration commented on his treatment, much less apologized for it. Soon after, something called the Cultural Life Program at Furman, which requires students to attend a certain number of public speeches, mysteriously decided to deny credit for mine unless the program inserted a different faculty interlocutor rather than the one who had invited me, presumably because the latter would have been too supportive. An article was posted by the independent online student newspaper, The Paladin, attacking the Tocqueville program, applauding the public abomination of Scott Unor, darkly noting that Catholics had been invited as speakers and taking pot shots at me. There's no evidence that the indignant writer had read my books or even knew their titles. The piece accused me of perpetuating dangerous dog-whistle myths adding that students demand to interrogate, another whistle, the Tocqueville program. Posters advertising my speech disappeared en masse around campus the week before the event. They were replaced and disappeared again. Furman community members following social media and conversations on campus relayed independently that the protest was expected to be substantial, 
as two put it. They also informed me about a letter that was sent by some students to the Cultural Life Programs Committee caricaturing my work and calling me names in an effort to revoke credit for attending my speech. As I mulled what to do about such unexpected hostility, different calculations came to mind. What might be the odds of an ugly, Yanor-style experience? Likely high. What about the odds of physical injury? Low, but not non-existent. In 2017, students at Vermont's Middlebury College attacked Professor Allison Stanger, sending her to the hospital after she hosted a talk by Charles Murray. Bystanders have been injured during other recent campus brawls, like the March 14th protest of a Charlie Kirk speech at the University of California, Davis, that left an officer injured. In 2021, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education polled 37,000 students at 159 campuses. 23% said they believe violence is justified against unwanted speech. Not all students think sending campus guests to the emergency room is good form, but one in four? In the end, it was a different thought that led me to pull the plug. As Leo Leibovitz put it recently in First Things, the terrible power our pursuers hold over us, the power of intimidation, of setting the terms of the debate, dissolves the moment you realize you're free to disengage. To which I add, bullies have a right to protest, but that right doesn't extend to dragooning others into untruths, including the untruth that people who join a hateful mob have any intention of listening to a speaker in the first place. They don't, and the rest of us are under no obligation to help them live that lie by playing along. To the students who did want to hear my speech, I'm sorry to miss you. On a positive note, it's better to read than to watch. Copies of Primal Screams have been sent to every student in Furman's Tocqueville program, and two dozen more will be available this week for whoever wants them. Delivered care of the university president's office since social media mobs lack mailing addresses. The book makes the case that social upheavals since the 1960s have led to compounded fractures on generations and that the implosion of family, real-life community, and religion has weakened many people's sense of identity. It further argues that the rise in mental and emotional problems increasingly visible on campuses and on the streets is a result of this. The students that are repulsed by free speech these days aren't victims of that analysis, but they are the poster children for it. So I was concerned, of course, if bailing and running away from any possible confrontation was in the best interest of free speech. But I think Ms. Eberstadt makes her case very well. I don't believe we have to keep indulging these juvenile antics on streets and protests and certainly not at college campuses. If they're not there to learn, and if they're not going to be open-minded enough to listen to speakers who they may not agree with, they don't even know if they agree with these speakers because they never allow them to speak. Well, if we don't put a stop to this kind of behavior, then we are raising up an army who one day will have to pay the bills that is incapable of having any free thought whatsoever. And as we begin to seed these freedoms away one at a time, the danger to our country becomes ever so palpable to me. I don't believe that you can have a free nation 
if you can't be free. And freedom starts with the First Amendment. We keep restricting the freedom of the press. We keep restricting the freedom of speech. We keep restricting freedom of worship. We keep restricting our freedoms, even as they are delineated in our Constitution, and we think the end is not going to be disastrous. Well, let me remind you, it always is. And the empires fall. It'll be very sad if this empire falls. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.